Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We had the Auditor General of Ontario, Bonnie Lysak, a couple days ago. Now we have the Auditor General of Canada, who Karen Hogan, who gave her report of things that the government did well or didn't do as well. These reports tend to be things they didn't do as well. That's the, the way the reports seem to go. The, the Auditor General, uh, you know, when I said things they did well or not really well, they rarely point out the things they did well, let's be honest. That's not really what they're there for. I mean, really, we expect that the government is going to do things well, whether that's a naive hope, I don't know, but we just, that that's the assumption. That's the baseline. Okay, the government's going to do things properly. We're going to bring in the Auditor General to find out where they didn't. And there were a couple things today that really, to me, leapt off the page. And I want to bring in Franco Terrazano. He is the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. Uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things we could talk about. I want to just concentrate on two things from the Auditor General's report today. And the first one, we, we came in with the song Bad Medicine by Bon Jovi. It's a, It sort of is fitting because we're finding out now that the Canadian government, as they were scrambling to try and find COVID medicine, and we, I think most Canadians were appreciative that they were going to look, even though we seem to be a little behind the curve, But we seem to have bought an extraordinary amount of COVID medication. We bought, according to the Auditor General, 169 million vaccine doses. Franco, we only have 38 million Canadians, which means that they were, I guess, anticipating that everybody was going to have almost five doses, including, and that's, we don't even, I mean, little tiny kids who are in that 38 million aren't eligible. So... This seemed like it was kind of, we'll spend whatever you need, buy as many as we want, and we'll figure out what to do with the extra later. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like to me, right? I mean, you just broke down the math perfectly. Uh, You know, a crazy amount of um, vaccines that I guess we're left with that haven't been used. I I was just reading some of the reports, and it looks like we might even have tens of millions of extra vaccines that haven't been used, right? And that really means that taxpayers are essentially going to be on the hook for about a billion dollars. Well, it is. And there's something else that I found very bizarre about this, which is that they've said, okay, we're going to have all this extra. So we're going to donate 50 or 51 million doses. And yet by the end of May, we've only donated 15.3 million. And so we're going to have to throw out a whole bunch. How, maybe I'm missing something. How hard is it to give away vaccines to countries that don't have it? You would think that would be the easiest thing in the world to do. Well, yeah, you would think. But but to be honest, I, I really don't know. I'm not an expert in what, what other countries are, are doing in terms of international procurement. But what I did see also in the report, it just looks like a lot of the vaccines are, are going bad. Right? right. Like they're just, they're the shelf life is uh, is hitting a wall here. And, and really, I think that's another issue. It's just, a lot of resources, a lot of money that was spent uh, for things that are not being used. And that's kind of my point, is that, okay, so we seem to have bought an extraordinary amount, so be it. But if all of this is going to sit there, I mean, imagine this is a grocery store and, you know, the store on a typical day sells 100 bananas and for some reason they decide they're going to buy 700 bananas. Rather than just throwing 600 bananas into the garbage, you would like to think, you know what, we'll, we'll go to a food bank or we'll go to wherever and donate these. That's kind of how I'm looking at this. Okay, if we're going to spend this money, at least then use it as opposed to just getting to the point where we have to throw everything out. 
Well, for sure. I mean, that's exactly, I think, what taxpayers would prefer, right? To at least not be squandering these resources. But this really just fits into the bigger picture. I think I think everyone, everyone understands that when a pandemic happens like this, once-in-a-lifetime um, thing happens, hopefully knock on wood, uh, there's going to be issues with procurement. But the problem is, is the general pattern. And the general pattern was just buckets of cash on everything without really any proper guardrails without really any proper protection, right? And that's not just with this vaccine oversupply that we're talking about, which is costing taxpayers a billion dollars. But even bigger than that was the lack of guardrails when all this money was being thrown out the door on all the COVID subsidies, whether it was the direct payments to individuals or the payments to businesses. We got the other half of the Auditor General report that shows that the overpayments to the ineligible recipients or the suspicious payments uh, could end up costing taxpayers tens of billions of dollars, right. potentially 15% of everything that was spent potentially could have gone to ineligible recipients. Right. Let's go there for a second, because earlier in the week or last week, I can't remember when the Ontario, I guess it was last week when Bonnie Lysa came out with the Ontario one, and uh, we were talking, not you and I, but someone else, we were talking on the show about the fact that they were saying there could be $4.6 billion that went ineligible to ineligible people, and many of those, it seems, or at least a fair number of those, were taking advantage, that they, that they were saying, this is money that... Um, was clearly not going to the right place. And at that moment, though, we said, look, I believe that the government had to do something to get money out the door quickly, so I understand, but now I really hope they're going to go and try and round this money up and get it back from the people who took it improperly. Today, though, they said, no, no, $4.6 billion? That, yeah, that could be, but it, we got to look. Here's the quote. Um we found that overpayments of $4.6 billion were made to ineligible individuals, and we estimate that at least $27.4 billion of payments to individuals and employees should be investigated further. So, I mean, we're not, I'm not talking about four, like I was sort of trying to be understanding when it was like $5 billion because of the circumstance, but we're talking now almost $30 billion. No, no, no. We're talking about at least $32 billion at least $32 billion, right? So when you add up the total amount that was spent on these COVID subsidies, uh, it could be potentially 15% that went to either ineligible people or that are at least suspicious and need to be investigated further. And, you know, let's just talk about CERB for a second here because that was, you know, one of the big, costly, expensive programs that was essentially the subsidies to individuals. Let me just break down some of the numbers here. There was $1.6 billion that went to 190,000 people who quit their job rather than being uh, laid off because of COVID-19 reasons. $1.6 billion to people who decided to quit their job. Okay, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There was also $6.1 million that was sent to people who were in jail. $6.1 million to 1,500 people who were in jail. There was $3.3 million sent to 700 people who were outside of Canada, not in Canada. There was $2.2 million sent to 400 people who were below the age of 15. And this might be the most ridiculous one. $1.2 million who were sent to 390 dead people. 
Like, okay. And, and I go back to my point from, from the other day when I was talking about this, is that I, I, I am willing to cut the government slack because I understand that this program had to be put together very quickly and it had to be done in rapid order to help people out. So I, last week, people can go back and listen to the discussion. I was very willing to be, I, I still wanted them to go and get the money back from the people who intentionally ripped off the government. I think that was yeah. necessary. But when you're now talking about almost, well, over $30 billion, this to me changes things dramatically because now you're not talking about, a, in the grand scheme of things, a small amount of the budget. I mean, $5 billion is $5 billion. It's a lot of money. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not all that much. But $30 billion or more is just, it's wild that that much money could just be unaccounted for. We're just literally going to turn on a fire hose and start spraying money everywhere with literally no idea where it's going. So $32 billion is like 35 hospitals. Let's just put that into context here, right? $32 billion is like 35 hospitals. Right, so three per province. You could build three new hospitals in every province or more with that money. And and you know what? Uh, Like, you know, to your point... I think people understood that in the first couple months of a pandemic, the government wasn't really probably just drinking from a drinking from a fire hose, right? Just trying to get just trying to get money out the door. Okay, maybe you can excuse that for month one, maybe month two, and maybe even month three. But some of these programs went into the year number two of the pandemic. So at what point did the government fail to put in? legitimate guardrails that would also protect the taxpayer. Because remember, think of think of the small business owner. Think of the person yeah, who owns 100%. that gym down the street, that restaurant down the street, who who, you know, needed some help because government shut them down. Well it's not fair that those restaurants, those people, those people who struggled and legitimately needed help, it's not fair for them to now have to recover the tax burden for what is it? million spent on people who are deceased, or even $2.2 million spent on people who are below the age of 15. Like, how did this even happen? Right? Did the government just like leave buckets of cash lying around on the street? Yes. And and now the problem is, Franco, we got to run. Now the problem is that some of these reports say that the time frame to start recouping some of this is passing quickly, and we're going to get to a point where they're going to have to essentially write this off for a lot of people because they won't be able to go. I don't know if it's by the next tax year or whatever else, but somewhere along the way, um, you're going to, we're going to probably just end up eating a lot of this. And that, that is an extraordinary amount of money that, um, you know, when you consider that many years, $30 billion may have been the federal deficit, the entirety of the federal deficit. And now we're just saying, ah, oops. That, that one's, a, that, oops, seems like an improper response for this one. Anyway, Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So the other day I mentioned, and we wanted to get to this earlier, but we just couldn't. So we're doing it today. Um, most of us listening, I'm thinking, to some degree grew up with Sesame Street. And I know a lot of you are thinking, why are we talking about Sesame Street? Well, because it's one of those things that over the generations from back in the 60s, 
it has been a constant. Your grandparents may have watched it. You may have watched it. You probably, anyway, it's been something that a lot of people, it's a touchstone for a lot of people, clearly, because earlier this week, when Bob McGrath died, Bob was one of the original human cast members on that show, started in 1969. In fact, the very first episode of the show I learned this week uh, the Sesame Street theme song, he sang it the first time. Then they had other people come in and do it, but it was his voice on the very first day. Anyway, um, when he when we heard that he passed away this week, I thought, you know what? I've got to go back into the archives because back in 2014, when Sesame Street was celebrating its 45th anniversary, I reached out and got Bob McGrath on the show. Let me tell you about how we got Bob McGrath on the show and how we found him. Because you say, well, how do you get someone like him who, you know, lives in the States, whatever, how do you get him onto your show up in Hamilton? Um, He was listed in the white pages of his hometown. So when I found out where he lived, I simply did a search and found his number, called him up. He answered the phone and I said, hey, I do a radio show in Hamilton, Ontario. Would you be willing to come on and join me? And he was absolutely thrilled to come on. He was happy to do it. And you'll hear when he talks... A lovely man, a lovely man. And I thought, let's, let's, for today, let's go back in the archive on the week that Bob McGrath died, since so many people have a connection somehow to that show. Here was my chat with Bob McGrath from 2014 on the 45th anniversary of Sesame Street. If you have any connection whatsoever to Sesame Street in your life, through your family, through your TV, you are going to know my next guest. Bob McGrath was one of the very first four human cast members. Human, of course, I say, because there were a lot of Muppets who were involved as well. But he was one of the first four. Today, it's 45 years since he went on the air with that cast for the very first episode of Sesame Street. Back in 1969, it started. I'm very pleased that Bob McGrath joins us now. Bob, how are you doing tonight? I'm great, Scott. How come every time I pick up the phone when it rings, those kids are singing that song? You must have heard that song 10 billion <laughs> times in your life by now. I certainly have, but I never get tired of it. It was it was the first original version of it, and it's still my favorite. They've gone through a lot of, a lot of variations since that time, but... Thanks. Nice to talk to you, Scott. Thanks well, for calling. Well, you too. And I got to tell you, I told a friend of mine today that you were coming on, and he texted me back, and he is close, 45 years old, close to 50-something in there, and he said that you were an icon of his childhood. And you know what? I mean, I think a lot of people would feel that, and I bet you you hear that from a lot of people. Uh, I do, and I, I was recently named a, a legend of Bergen County for a New Jersey is 350 years old, and I feel I, I decided that to be an icon or a legend, you have to be very, very old. That's one of the, that's one of the titles you gain after. But it <laughs> after does. Outlived. It does have to mean something, though, to you, though, because so yeah. many people say it legitimately. They, when they think of you, when they see your picture, when they see you on TV, you really mean something to them. Well, yeah. I mean, I have to. I try and keep a level bubble on that whole thing in my head when people give a lot of accolades about it's it's really i mean i have to real i feel you know i'm i'm a, a one small cog in a very large wheel and what they're really doing is they're they're reminiscing and reminding them all the wonderful years that the entire show with all the muppets and cast and everything has meant to them and it's meant an enormous amount 
and it's very gratifying to hear. Sometimes they're just incredibly poignant stories that they tell about their their watching. Sometimes it's not all fun and games. Sometimes it's changing their life in many ways, especially kids who grew up in really, really tough inner-city situations and decided they wanted to get out of that neighborhood and join a neighborhood like Sesame Street. Uh, you were a singer, and I'm guessing that when you first signed on to join this show, you probably didn't anticipate that Childhood Icon, 45 years later, was going to be your title, though. <laughs> Not at all. As a matter of fact, uh, it, uh, when I first heard about this from a fraternity brother in front of Carnegie Hall who had just finished the Kangaroo Show, and I had just finished nine trips to Japan, and he said, I'm getting involved in a new kids' show. You think you'd be interested in auditioning? And I said, not in the least, because <laughs> I, I had a whole teenage thing going for three years and nine or ten trips to Japan. I thought I was going to become the next Andy Williams, Perry Como here. But, you know, the Beatles had invaded, so that was never, ever going to happen with anybody. But uh, when I saw a little bit of the um, things with the Muppets and Jim Henson, I thought, whoa, this is a whole different show, and I auditioned vigorously and was one of the three out of the four that made made the final cut of the shows that we they showed all across the country on a closed GHF channel. So very lucky I am, for sure. Well, and I'm, had you ever done any work with non-humans before that moment? Oh, never. No, I mean, you know, I had a few friends that were... <laughs> no. <laughs> but, no, fuzzy, fuzzy non-human friends, no, never. Um... I know my my whole thing was first of all I'm legitimately trained so I, you know I had a chance to sing in symphonic choral works under Leonard Bernstein and Pavel Casals and recorded under Savinsky. I had a classical background with a master's from Manhattan School of Music and undergrad at University of Michigan. So I'd done that plus a lot of different kinds of pop and classical kinds of things and oratorios and rock and roll and jingles and the whole thing. But my whole major life before that was about four years with Mitch Miller, Sing Along with Mitch, which was the number one NBC show, and then three, a spinoff of that show in Japan and back nine trips there. So I had never, never really entertained, except for my own five kids and grandchildren, entertained children in any way, shape, or form, and never really planned on making 13 cents doing that. Well, and what, so what were the challenges right off the bat when you first started and the show was just getting its feet under it and was trying to get sorted out? What were the challenges working with these puppets and stuff like that that you'd never worked with before? Actually, uh, the only challenge was trying to be smarter than the puppet. <laughs> and I'm serious because, you know, with Frank Oz and Jim Henson, and I did a lot of pieces with them for the people in the neighborhood, which became sort of a, my pop record, my hit song with Sesame Street with them. Uh, the tracks were always pre-recorded, and the dialogue leading into the when we when I sang live, all the talk and the and the singing was all live. And the challenge was, Frank and Jim would love to try and change a crazy little line and give me about two and a half seconds to recoup from wanting to fall over laughing with their creative humor uh, before I sang. Oh, a fireman is brave, it said, or whatever the quote whatever the uh, verse might be so that was that was great great fun and challenging and the other thing i kept asking who am i supposed to be because i was not a trained actor per se i'd done some uh, you know uh, i've done some summer stocks theater kind of not theater uh, musical comedy things but mainly in chorus and i thought they're not going to pay me just to come on and be myself and i kept saying to my wife i wonder who i'm supposed to be on this i'm I can keep my own name, Bob, 
But it turned out, and I asked that sort of through the whole first year. I was the music person, but that was a off, that was a sometime job. It wasn't on every show, uh, having kids and performing and stuff. And I sang a lot, but um, you know, I didn't have an apartment. I did well. I had a a window that I stuck my head out of over Hooper's, which was a four by eight piece of plywood. I had to climb up on <laughs> on a ladder to get to get to, <laughs> and and but. Uh, but in the second year, I said, you know, I'm still not really sure who I'm supposed to be. And they said, we would like you just to be yourself and continue doing what you're doing. And they found that to be true pretty much for the entire cast, except for Willie, Mr. Hoopy. He, had a, he was the only one that had a legitimate theatrical background, and he was fantastically good. And he took on a, a very specific persona. But the rest of us pretty much were always ourselves. He was himself also, but he also had great acting chops so he added another level of authority to his shopkeeping so bob when did uh, you realize though that you were on to something how quickly was it that all the cast went wow this is this is actually working we're we're getting somewhere here uh they got good they got very very good feedback uh through the mail and through other we had we had people we had four or five or six people stationed around the country to make sure that our target audience which was Ninety-nine percent uh, target was inner-city kids because that's who the show was really designed for, <clears throat> and those those comments were good. I think one of the first time we saw, I think it was in the the first time we had the first summer that we were not taping after during that first year of '69. We did we we went out and did concerts in all the major uh, four or five or six of the major cities in the country, including Chicago and and Jackson, Mississippi, and Los Angeles. And I remember we had a concert in Los Angeles at a huge park, probably two or 3,000 kids or more sitting on the lawn. And uh, it was kind of funny. Matt Robinson, who was Gordon at the time, went out to sort of tease the audience before we all made our appearance. And every time he mentioned Big Bird, it was like, it was like a little mini, mini Woodstock. All these little kids with their <laughs> Big Bird <laughs> dolls would thrust them over their head. You know, it was like, like having... Uh, you know, a major rock star put his his CD up at Woodstock, and everybody go crazy. And he came back, and he said, he said it's wild. Every time I mentioned Big Bird, he said, you know, they all throw their birds up over the top of their heads. And he said, uh, I think I'm going to go back out and <laughs> he said it's like Woodstock. I think I'm going to go back out and say, kids, <laughs> there's some bad gum going around. And uh, if you have to, just do half a stick. <laughs> could, could 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 a show like Sesame Street start now? I mean, obviously, it's still going strong after forty-five years, but it started yeah. at a time you were you started a year after Mister Rogers. There was clearly something that was open to children's television then. Could a show like Sesame Street start now and succeed, or are we way too cynical for that now? Well, it it. That's a really interesting question because at this point the show has uh, we've gone from first of all from 120 to 26 shows a season, and that's for a lot of reasons it has to do with finances and it costs more, but also has to do that now there are 60 about 60 cable children's television shows out there that are all competing mainly with cartoons, etc. There are some I'm sure that CBC has some great children's live things and uh, PBS has some other wonderful shows and there are other uh, there are others, some other wonderful channels that are producing good shows, but it's such a different landscape now when kids are are watching the show on you know a couple of different platforms, including their little handheld devices. And so, 
you have to you have to have the eyeballs there and to buy the product or you're no longer in existence. So our show has had to change right now. The human beings on our show are only really on in the first 10, 11, 12, 13 minutes uh, because our sort of zero to three or three and a half target audience now can't really hang on to a storyline longer than 10, 11, 12 minutes where it used to run through the whole 60 minutes. So there's a lot of major changes going in. I think they've done a wonderful job of keeping up to the competition, but on the other hand, we're all, we all kind of feel that some of those old shows had an, a broader sense of the neighborhood. I know I feel very strongly about that. There just isn't time to have uh, you know, six, seven, eight segments running through the hour where you can generate a, a, a continuing storyline. So, However, some parents have told me that even with their uh, three, four, five, six-year-olds, in fact, I talked to somebody today, he had two children, uh, two and five, and he said his five-year-old is more interested in the segments of the show now that are dealing with numbers and letters. He said he can start to write, he can start to spell. And I I think it would be an interesting test to run the, they have the old school Sesame, the first ten years of the show, the first segment, the first show of each of the first ten years. And I have a feeling that kids would find it just as compelling as the current show, but maybe not for the one, twos, and three-year-olds, but certainly for the four, five, sixes. But those are all, none of those shows are high def, mm, and they yeah. don't play anything that's not high def. So. Bob, I, it's I, I a could, long, complicated answer, it, actually. Well, it, but you know what? It's interesting about how times have changed, certainly, in attention spans and everything else. Now, unfortunately, yeah. I've got about 30 seconds. I could do this all night. I've got about 30 seconds, but I want to say, a study in 1993 said 86% of kindergartners and grade ones watch Sesame Street at least once a week which means that there's an awful lot of kids, 25 and older now, who yep. grew up watching you and know you. Where's the strangest place someone's ever recognized you and come up and said hello? Yep. Uh, it, I meet them all the time. Not the, not the toddlers and not the two- and three-year-olds, because it's a whole different landscape for them. But the late 20s, 30s, and 40s, I'll tell you, uh, women break out and start bawling when they pass me on the street sometimes. <laughs> not... Not that I look that decrepit, but uh, it brings back all their wonderful memories of the show, not just of, of me, and I just happen to be passing at that moment. But it's, it's really, really wonderful to meet all those people and see how the show has changed their life. It's very, very gratifying. You're like Sesame Street's version of Justin Bieber, by the sounds of it. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a yeah. I don't know. I, I never. <laughs> I've never thought of that. I thought I was maybe slightly a hipper Fred Rogers, maybe. But, <laughs> but uh, getting getting a hug from Fred Rogers and the Peck and the Chief from Beyonce were probably two of my highlights in 45 years. No so. doubt about it. You you have a new website, BobMcGrath.com. I believe it launched today. It did launch today. People can go. Also, sorry, go ahead very quickly. And and and, and also uh, a wonderful article on the Huffington Post. If anybody can grab that on their thing, she did. A, we chicken them did a two-hour interview from Washington a couple of weeks ago, and they ran that today. And that's that tells me more about me than I've ever wanted to know. So, Bob, I could. But, as, the, but the website is great, and I'm hoping that teachers go to it because we have a teacher page that we're trying to infuse and use some of the my keynotes and workshops to help them with 
uh, presenting music to young children to keep music alive in their lives. I wish we had two hours to do this, but unfortunately I don't tonight. Bob McGrath, thank you so much for doing this. Congratulations on 45 years and many more to you. Thank you very much, Scott. Great talking to you. Great, you too. That yeah. is Bob McGrath. One of the that was Bob McGrath uh, from 2014. Died uh, this week, but a guy whose voice, um, I think when you hear his voice, many of you will flash back to your childhood or 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 like me. I mean, I, I watched Sesame Street, I guess, as a kid. I know I did, but I watched a lot of Sesame Street with my kids. My daughter especially loved Sesame Street. And so I would watch a lot of Sesame Street as an adult, as a, you know, a young father. And, you know, and, and when he talks about those memories that you have from your childhood, it doesn't have to be your childhood because you, th- those memories, I think, still matter when you remember watching with your kids. It's still a time that goes by and a time in the past. Anyway, that is, uh, uh, we were glad that we were able to catch up with him many years ago. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.